Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast. We can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we'll provide summaries and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I'm one of your hosts, Andrei Kurenkov. I am just about done with my PhD at Stanford, where I studied AI, and I'm now working at an AI startup using generative AI for some cool stuff. And I'm your other host, Jeremy Harris. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Gladstone AI. We're this national security and AI company. We do a bunch of work on AI safety, and I have a book, Quantum Physics Made Me Do It, available fine bookstores everywhere and on the internet, blah, 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 blah. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, yeah, Andre, big week. Big week. So based on some of the feedback we got last week, what you mentioned, right. we are going to try something new. We're going to try to change up the structure a bit with more sections, and we're going to kind of get rid of a lightning round. We're just going to kind of you know have stories, be stories, and some of them we'll discuss more, and some of them we discuss less. Now, before I introduce the sections and everything, quick note, we are still getting a lot of comments, which is awesome. We got some comments on Substack and YouTube and a bunch of very nice reviews on Apple. One correction, uh, which someone sent in, which is nice. I briefly mentioned Make a Video was by Google last week. Uh, that's the text to video model. That's one of the cutting edge ones. That's actually by Meta, by Facebook. Google released Imagine Video and Finaki around the same time. So anyway, we were discussing text to video and these are some of the big names in the game. One of the other comments that jumped out to me, somebody said like, hey, you guys uh, you guys ask for reviews a lot. And I was like, shit, you know what? I don't, I don't actually I don't actually know why we do that. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, but you know, like all podcasters or whatever, they're always like, remember to like, comment and subscribe. And I'm not exactly sure why we do that, but I appreciate seeing the comments. I love it for myself. So I don't know, I guess it's an algorithm thing. Like, I'm not sure, Andre, if you have any insight into this, into why people specifically should do this, but... We, we just want the dopamine, you know? We just want the dopamine. Okay, yeah, okay. Cool. <laughs> no, that's, but, that's my thing. I was wondering if they like somehow know something that I don't know, but... But yeah, you know, reviews on Apple would be great, but you can also comment on Substack or YouTube or whatever. And we read them and we do take the feedback and corrections very much uh, into account. Yeah, super appreciate it. And so let me go ahead and uh, give a preview of what we're doing this week. We're going to have... Uh, more sections. So we're going to start with tools and apps, which is uh, kind of a business, but for what you can use with AI. So there's going to be some stuff on AI, powered coding and design. We are still going to have our applications and business section. And we're going to talk about Jeffrey Hinton leaving Google, which is a huge story and how AI is impacting journalism and some other things. We are adding a new category of projects and open source, which we've been discussing a lot last week. And we're going to be talking about some new open source models from Stability AI and some stuff on uh, coding. Next, we're going to have research and advancements with kind of a variety of stories, less just NLP this week. And one of the exciting stories being a study on how generative AI boosted worker productivity. Then we're going to have policy and safety as before with more talk about alignment 
and some lawmakers in the U.S. making some moves. And we'll finish up still with art and fun stuff where we'll talk about AM music and get around to some really funny stories. So that's the preview. Once again, you can always look in the description of a podcast for the timestamps. And you can go to uh, you know lastweekinai.com or lastweekin.ai for the links as well. Okay, let's get going in tools and apps. First up, we have Microsoft makes its AI-powered designer tool available in preview. So apparently, Microsoft has been working on a Canva-esque web app, which is basically a web app where you can do design. So you can create presentations, posters, digital postcards, etc. And it is now in public preview. So you can go there, use it. Uh, I think it's accessible through the Edge sidebar and the designer website. And the big thing about it is, of course, it integrates DALI 2. So you can basically generate images on the fly as part of creating a poster or whatever you're doing. Yeah, I, th I thought one of the really interesting aspects of this, you know, we've talked about the idea of user experience for generative AI being this kind of undiscovered country that people don't really know how to set it up yet. What are the norms going to be in user experience? One of the things that they flag in this article is they talk about how they've worked to weave these powerful capabilities throughout the designer canvas in even more delightful ways while keeping you in control. And that's a phrase that's kind of interesting, right? As we can see these companies starting to decide what it means for something for somebody to feel in control rather than just like making it, you know, an AI generated tool with some human oversight, making it feel like a human generated product with like AI fine tuning or something like that. And so that relationship is, is an interesting thing that we're starting to see evolve. We're starting to see some more opinionated takes uh, along the lines of, of this particular tool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's... Interesting to see how this will differ from something like Canva. So if I just look at some screenshots, they have one that says, describe the design you'd like to create. And you just write a social media post about a summer concert series. So that's going away from something like Midjourney or you know Dali, which don't do text very well, don't do things like that very well. Apparently with this, you can just make you know an Instagram post or a Twitter post for marketing purposes. And yeah, like these design tools are very mature, right? Canva and, and Photoshop and whatever else uh, has a lot of functionality built in that are very powerful. So it'll be interesting to see, like you say, how AI kind of gets added in nicely. Yeah, and there's kind of this like long tail of functionality. I'm not sure if we talked about this on the podcast before, but it's a conversation I have often with people who look at like, you know, integrating generative AI into existing tools. And you, you look at something like Excel or you look at something like uh, Canva or, or whatever. And like you say, these are very feature complete projects. And so figuring out like what is the space for generative AI? What is the space for AI in general in the system is kind of a tough challenge because you don't want to disrupt the value it's already creating, but you do want to wedge this in. In a way, it can be really helpful because it can help users with less training to access rarer features that would otherwise need more expertise. So you kind of get more surface kind of access, access to more of the surface of the product, thanks to the generative AI stuff as well. Um, so anyway, a lot of like interesting dimensions coming from this. Uh, last thing, I think I'll, I'll just flag this kind of interesting note, at least it was to me. You know, Microsoft was saying that users of this tool are going to have what they call full usage rights to commercialize the images that they create with uh, the designer and, and their image creator. But the thing is, like I, this kind of makes me wonder, 
can they really make those assurances? Because it seems like there are a lot of unsettled legal questions around, like, can you use copyrighted data to train these models? And if you do, then who owns the generated product? So like, I, I don't know if maybe Microsoft, you know, not that they're over their skis here, but these might be promises that are a little hard to keep in the long run. It's going to be interesting to see where this sort of thing goes. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and one thing I guess also worth noting is this is uh, currently free in its preview period. So if this is interesting, you can you know go ahead and try it out. Next, we have Visual Studio IntelliCode AI Assistant gets deep learning upgrade. So uh, Microsoft has improved the code completion capabilities of Visual Studio as inbuilt code completion tool in Telecode. So GitHub Copilot is the thing you can pay for to do code completion and code generation. Visual Studio is Microsoft's sort of flagship uh, integrated development environment for coding. And now their IntelliCode that is just built in is better. It can do whole line completions and more intelligent suggestions, although it's still not you know, anywhere near as good as Copilot as far as I can tell from this article. Yeah, and there, there are interesting dimensions now, like the, the dimensions in which code writing software or sorry, code writing AI, code completion AI are like better or worse. You know, one, one thing that I've, I've heard or I've actually encountered too now uh, is with tools like GitHub Copilot that, you know, like their training data ends in like 2021 or something. And so if you're looking to use a package that wasn't created until 2022, you all of a sudden you're like, wait, like all of my, all of my like help here has just vanished. Like I can't use this tool as effectively. And so, you know, even if you have a new tool like this come out, even if it's not, you know, on paper more powerful than Copilot or whatever, maybe there are niche uses, you know, if it does have a more up-to-date uh, training data set. So anyway, that's sort of like the, the marginal advantage of having these more recent uh, updates come out. Yeah, so this is, uh, I guess Copilot is pretty much just a machine learning uh, language model, right? So it's doing text completion. Uh, I think this is an extension of IntelliSense, which does things like, you know, recommending function names based on code analysis of the library. So in that sense, it could integrate nicely. Uh, very cool. Okay. Yeah. Have you, have you played around with Copilot much? Jeremy? Yeah, yeah, I have a little bit. I've I've actually I've been really impressed with it, but I think that's because the things I was doing with it were very much like in distribution, if you will. Like they were very like mundane, regular boilerplate code. Um, things like data analysis and visualization and scikit-learn level machine learning. Nothing like very impressive. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really curious to talk to people who use it for like kind of more sophisticated stuff. We have a guy on our team who who's using it for uh, for LLM stuff with Langchain and whatnot. So that's a conversation I should have with him. Have you have you like what's your experience been so far with it? Yeah, I just started using it last week. Uh, finally, you know, got into that hype train, and it's it's been impressive in some ways and less impressive in other ways. Uh, yesterday, I had a really really funny experience where I was you know, working on some code generation stuff and I had a list of allowed function calls to make. So I made like a little set in Python of like allowed func calls. And I was writing a function like detect invalid function and or it does contain invalid function calls. And what Copilot did was the exact wrong thing. It basically was like, okay, here's a list of allowed things the valid functions mm. if there is a valid function call in the string return true right whereas what i'm looking for is like 
does it contain any things that are not in that set of valid function calls? So yeah, it, it was kind of funny seeing it like completely messed up on the logic of something a little more, you know, intricate. Were you able to get it to to like behave properly by changing your prompt? Like, or, or... Yeah, I was surprised. I like commented out the function uh, or commented the function with like, here's the logic I wanted to follow. And then I had this crazy thing where instead of generating a suggestion to follow the comment, it just like copied the code of the function below it for some reason <laughs> so anyway copilot really cool but maybe still has some difficulties and these more traditional things that you don't have to pay for getting better is obviously uh pretty exciting and speaking of ai stuff for coders next we have gitlab's new security feature uses AI to explain vulnerabilities to developers. So developer platform GitLab, kind of similar to GitHub, announced that they have this, you know, explain vulnerability uh, function. And this is following on a previous announcement that they have to ex explain code to a developer or even anyone in your organization. And another experimental feature that can summarize uh, issue comments. So yeah, they're really just rolling out these experimental features uh, one by one. Yeah, it is great to see this too, because we've seen so much concern about AI being used to power, you know, malware and cyber attacks. And you know, if you're ever going to keep up with that, you're going to need to you're going to need to use it to augment your uh, your defensive capabilities as well. This is one indirect way to do that: is you know, have AI help you uh, with your your code generation and tightening. Um, but one thing that's really interesting too, one risk class that gets introduced when you start to look at this sort of like having a, a centralized tool that gives you tips on how to improve your the security of your software, you can start getting correlated risk. So like if everybody is using GitLab to secure their software and, and help them write more secure code and GitLab screws up or there's like a consistent error that it makes, all of a sudden that error gets inherited by all the software that's based on it. And you know, we already know about things like data poisoning attacks that very cheaply can completely throw off the uh, the performance of a model that's trained on poisoned data. And we, we, you know, we've talked about some of those episodes on the podcast before. So you know, I think overall, this obviously this is great. It's just kind of interesting that now we're shifting into that mode where maybe the targets of a, of a kind of the attack surface are starting to shift. Where it's like, okay, maybe don't target the software, don't just target the software. Maybe also target the tools that the software developers are using to harden up the software because they might have kind of a soft underbelly as well. It's kind of interesting to, to think about in this context. Yeah, I agree. And back to the point of how do you integrate these functionalities, this is kind of an interesting model by GitLab of, right, they're not, I guess, screening code exactly. They're explaining vulnerabilities and saying, okay, well, this might be an issue. Maybe you should revise your code this way. And they have uh, in their blog post also various kind of aspects of it where you can configure specific policies or you know screen certain types of files in certain ways. So yeah, I think it's that is part of a consideration when you design it. And also they had this uh, DevSecOps support and I found it interesting. They said 65% of developers are already using AI and machine learning in their testing efforts or plan to do so. And 36 of teams use an AI or ML tool to check their code before code reviewers even see it. 
Yeah, and that probably will go up to a hundred, right? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Like, I think one of the the cool things here too is like, the, you know, you can only make developers so efficient, right? Like, you can you can throw GitHub Copilot at them or whatever else, but like at a certain point, other bottlenecks are going to show up, and one of those bottlenecks is, as they point out in the article, is code review, and like that is such a I don't know. I hate reviewing code personally, but anyway, you know, in any good software development lifecycle, somebody writes the code and then other people review the code and then it actually gets merged in with the master code base. But um, yeah, this is a great way to help kind of, you know, give some lift to that, uh, that part of the equation and hopefully automate away a pretty, a pretty boring part of the day-to-day -day process of developing code. Yeah, definitely. And moving on to something not code related that maybe regular people <laughs> might be interested in, we have TikTok is testing a new option to create AI generated avatars for profile pictures. So not too much to say on this. This is still kind of in, in the build, not public. But from the reporting, it looks like you'll basically be able to do you know your standard sort of selfie modifications, apply AI stylization, and create an avatar that has some cool like background or anime or you know painting or whatever. And there's some notes here on they will delete all the uploaded photos of your face. You need to upload three to 10 photos of yourself and you will only be able to use it once a day. Uh, but yeah, I guess not kind of too surprising and probably makes sense to introduce this. Yeah, I, I got to say one of the things I was surprised by here was just how long this has taken to serve. Like I would have thought that TikTok, given you know all the emphasis on visual stimulus and, and dopamine hits from from visual stuff, uh, and given that like mid journey and stability are out there, and and you know we've, we've we've kind of progressed quite far along in the generative image domain. I'm surprised it took this long, and that now that they are launching it, it seems to come with a lot of these constraints, like. You can only use it once a day. Like there's a, I think there was another thing about the number of of um, uh, pictures that you could generate in one shot. Like as as the uh, as the image uh, specialist here, like or the vision specialist, do you have any any gut sense as to like why that might be the case, or is this just like they're not stability? Well, my guess is it could be. There's a couple of reasons. It could be, be this is like in alpha mode or whatever, better mode, and they just haven't scaled up a compute. So you can imagine, especially mm. if you launch this feature, right? A lot of people, a lot of users will presumably start trying it and just using right. a ton of avatar generation. And that is expensive computationally. So unless you have a really scalable cloud infrastructure, you might just get hammered and this will, will break uh, kind of thing. So I think it's probably a mix of infrastructure and just not wanting to pay uh, a ton of money since this is free for the user, but you know you're using some expensive GPUs to do some stuff. And if you have, you know, what what TikTok has probably hundreds of millions of users or something, that's yeah, going to yeah, add up. Maybe billions actually at this point. I don't know. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, still an experiment. It's in some regions, uh, but probably will come out to you soon, uh, I would imagine. And next up, we're looking at the applications and business section here. The first story is quite a big one. The godfather of AI leaves Google and warns of danger ahead. And this is Jeff Hinton. So for those keeping track at home, uh, deep learning was basically founded, you could say, by Jeff Hinton. There are three people who together won the Turing Prize, which you can think of roughly as like the Nobel Prize for computing. 
and uh, or for computer science. And that was, you know, Jeff Hinton was one of them for, for deep learning. There was Yashik Benjo, there's Jan LeCun. Jeff Hinton was the OG deep learning guy back in the day. He was doing it way before it was cool. And he's stepping away from Google, interestingly, um, now with seemingly like regrets for having maybe founded the field. Like he says in the article, quote, I console myself with a normal excuse. If I hadn't done it, by which he means found the field, if I hadn't done it, someone, somebody else would have. And the thing that makes him feel bad about having founded this field is that he's coming out now and saying he sees AI as a source of very significant catastrophic risk, the kind of risk that um, it sounds like he's referring to includes here AI alignment risks. So basically, you know, AI is going rogue, power-seeking behavior, the, sort of, the sorts of things that we've talked about uh, on the podcast before. And in the short term, he's also talking about malicious use. You know, so he's looking at like, Really, you know, a flood of, of fabricated data, images, video, text, all the stuff that, you know, if you listen to the podcast, you're, you're aware uh, of and tracking. But so that's his kind of short term concern. His long term concern is his catastrophic risk. And basically, he's saying, I didn't feel like I could make these kinds of statements as openly as I would now like to uh, while I'm still at Google, because he was working at Google for like a really long time. It was like 10 years. And uh, they basically bought him out quite early on. And, uh, and so here he is kind of loud and proud with his concerns uh, about catastrophic risk. He's joining Yashua uh, uh, Bengio, uh, one of those three, uh, you know, the second out of the three founders of deep learning uh, in that concern. And now the only holdout is Yan LeCun. He seems to be the only guy who, who isn't uh, kind of knocking on the door of uh, catastrophic risk, but kind of an interesting change in the, the landscape around this stuff. Yeah. As you say, I think this is a Big story. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know that much AI history, just to give a bit of a you know a summary, Jeffrey Hinton has been around since really the late seventies. Uh, mm-hmm. He moved from the U.S. to Canada in early nineteen eighties because he didn't want to take Pentagon f- uh, funding for military uses of AI. And in the mid eighties, he was. Part part of the reason that neural nets kind of gained a lot of steam. So neural nets now are what all this AI is doing. They have been around for many decades. In the mid '80s, he published one of the very very influential papers on how to train neural nets. They uh, became popular for a while. Then neural nets sort of stopped being popular for various reasons by the mid '90s. Then in the mid 2000s, in 2006. Jeffrey Hinton and some of his uh, researchers, co-researchers, coined the term deep learning. And pretty much, you could argue, were one of the main factors in neural nets becoming popular again with some of their research and this deep learning term. And then in 2012, it was uh, Jeffrey Hinton's team that created the first big deep learning neural net result. They showed that trained on a lot of data and with a neural net, you could do way better at image classification than with any existing techniques. So multiple times, Geoffrey Hinton has kind of revived neural nets, you could almost say, and was very, very pivotal to this current moment we were in of everything being giant neural nets and giant data. And so, yeah. Him leaving and saying, maybe we should slow down. This is all moving too fast. There's going to be misinformation. Maybe, you know, a lot of jobs will be lost. If this is super intelligent, maybe even there'll be extinction level risk. 
yeah, it's a very dramatic kind of demonstration of just how crazy the progress of AI has been over the last year. Yeah, and, and to your point, right, you mentioned that 2012 breakthrough, uh, that computer vision model, it's called AlexNet, um, if people aren't familiar with it. Uh, one of the the uh, researchers on that paper was Ilya Sutskever, who's gone on, of course, to uh, co-found OpenAI as basically their their head of research, roughly, and, and one of the masterminds behind the whole the GPT series. So Jeff Hinton, really influential at, at today's cutting edge. For, you know, forget all the stuff he's done at Google, just like OpenAI and all the stuff he's touched. And one of the things I, I found so interesting too about this is like for a long time. Um, you know, everybody's got their own freakout threshold. You know, the, the first AI system that makes them go, "Holy crap!" You know, for some people it was like GPT two. If you're really smart, I wasn't that smart. Um, for other people, it was GPT four, where they went, well, "Like, geez, this can now do crazy things." Some people was Chat GPT. Um, interestingly, Jeff Hinton only recently changed his mind on human level AI being potentially fairly imminent. For a long time, he seems to have held the view that, ah, you know, this is like decades away. Uh, and it's only really in the last year, he says in the article, that that changed for him. And he's flagging like, you know, he doesn't mention the specific model. He just says broadly what's happened in the last year or something like that. And so, you know, maybe he's referring to Google's Lambda or to ChatGPT or some combination there. But it's sort of interesting to see that you know, maybe the level of, of technical knowledge you have doesn't necessarily translate into early warning, like an early intuition on freakout levels. You know, people are just kind of you know, have their own, you know, whatever those levels are, and knowing a bunch about the field doesn't mean that you, you freak out earlier or later. Um, I, I thought that was kind of an interesting note here. Yeah, that is interesting. And in a way, it makes sense where you know the people that were predicting this giant progress were very much on the scaling hypothesis train of make the things we have bigger and right. they'll get better. Um, Hinton has been off doing some research on kind of foundationally different approaches uh, with capsule networks. He hasn't really been putting out papers that are in the sort of mainstream of what people are doing. So I could see how, in a way, he was pessimistic about the capabilities of the current paradigm. But yeah, it's... The fact that he is now pointing out these potential concerns of misinformation and autonomous weapons and extinction is very dramatic. And maybe, you know, given he is such an influential figure, maybe that will lead to more being done to prepare for it. True. And as a last quick note, just to, to do some responsible journalism here, um, there was, I think, a, a line in the New York Times article that seemed to imply that he felt that he couldn't criticize Google or something like that uh, until he left it or, or whatever. And I think he since tweeted saying, look, I don't think Google is irresponsible. I don't think they're bad stewards of this tech. I just wanted that extra freedom. So kind of, a, you know, maybe to, to round this out, there's sort of another, not drama, but another layer of information there uh, as well. Yep. And then next up in business, we have machine learning as a service market size growing at 37.9 uh, compound annual growth rate set to reach 173.5 billion by 2032. So this is a report from Acumen Research and Consulting about this machine learning as a service market. So that's where you can pay for, I don't know, something like natural language processing or computer vision from a provider like AWS or Google Cloud. Uh, so you get machine learning as a service. And yeah, the prediction is right now we are sitting at you know 
that market being around seven billion, and the prediction is ten years from now it'll be at one hundred seventy-three point five billion. Um, it's one of these typical reports with you know you have to pay to get it and, and see all the details, and a lot of it seems to be a little bit generic, but. Um, yeah, it's an interesting prediction, and to me, it actually, seems maybe a little low on the low end of you know. Yeah, even, I don't know. I, I I had the same thought. I was reading it. I'm like, first of all, you look at the the graphic that they show, right? And it's just like, uh, oh, surprise, surprise! It's going to be a perfect exponential and and a gradually increasing exponential, which means that all the regular white collar people who say that they're really good at doing projections and running numbers uh, can be really happy because this is one of those very conventional models that shows a gradual but exponential increase in blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I mean, I don't know this like, okay, I'm the guy who's going to come out and say, I think these estimates are like way too conservative. Um, we, we live in a world where like Demis Hassabis, like the founder of co-founder of DeepMind came out a couple days ago and said, I think human level AI might be achievable in the next couple of years. Like if that is anywhere near, like, like forget about if that's right, but if that is anywhere near right, and he would probably be a pretty good person to, you know, a good data point, then the level of change we're talking about is like, like we are not talking about 40% increases in this, the size, even just of this specific market over the next, you know, however many years. Um, we're looking at, I would bet, I would bet, maybe I'm wrong, but I would bet very transformational change. Uh, and these, I don't know, these numbers seem a little, uh, a little strikingly low. I agree. I mean, machine learning as a service, that counts OpenAI and ChatGPT, right? Yeah. That's any API that leads to machine learning. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, I guess, hopefully, we'll see another report that we find to be more plausible. But maybe we don't understand economics, so who knows? That, that's true. Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't make it at, at Gardner. And next, I think a pretty dramatic, interesting story. We have Insider lays off 10% of staff after announcing Pivot to AI. And related to that, kind of in the same vein, there was an article in Gizmodo titled, After the Death of BuzzFeed News, Journalists Should Treat AI as an Existential Threat. So, uh, yes, Insider laid off 10% of its staff just a week after urging its writers to incorporate AI tools like ChatGPT. And this is coming after BuzzFeed killed off its BuzzFeed news division and as part of that had uh, 15% uh, layoffs across the company and of course is also prioritizing AI strategically. And the same is true of CNET. CNET also was one of the early adopters of generating articles of AI and laid off 10% of its staff. So, you know, three different media organization, three different uh, instances of large-scale firings. It seems to be kind of a worrying trend. Yeah, it seems like the writing's on the wall here. Um, and it's it's also similar to what we're seeing in EdTech. There is a, we're not going to talk about this story today, but there was like a, a big story about Chegg losing like 40% of its market cap and Pearson and anyway, a bunch of these in Duolingo um, for similar reasons, right? I mean, like, like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit here for automation. Um, but you know, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember when everyone was being told, like, "Oh, don't worry, AI is going to augment, not automate your work." And you know, it, it kind of now looks like, nope, <laughs> that that was not uh, not necessarily the case. Or at least, like, if you augment 
you know, one person and, and like double their productivity. Yeah. Like you need less staff, at least, at least for some jobs. And I think that the issue here is that journalism seems to be one of those jobs where you just kind of pump out more volume. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're already seeing other companies too saying explicitly that they're not planning on hiring back office workers anymore, right? Just because they expect automation to come for that too. So it, it seems like some of these transformational economic changes are, are already kind of materializing maybe sooner than, I don't know, sooner than I would have expected. It's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, it's happening very quickly. And I think, like you say, it's not the case that necessarily ChatGPT just replaces a person in their job. It's more like a reporter now writes with ChatGPT and can produce twice the number of stories in the same amount of time. So BuzzFeed said it will focus on increasing speed and effectiveness while pivoting to bring AI enhancements to every aspect of our sales process. So yeah, it's... Yeah, it's, I don't know. I was just talking with someone yesterday and they were expressing this concern of, you know, existential kind of depression about AI. And right, yeah. We'll be seeing a lot of this probably in a lot of sectors of like just 10, 15% of people are going to be laid off because AI makes people more effective or more efficient. Well, and this is a common complaint too, like in Silicon Valley, you know, like a, a, I remember like a YC and, and that whole ecosystem, you know, people often, um, people pointed this out with social media that like, look, the New York Times implicitly is in competition with Twitter. It's in competition with Facebook. It's in competition with like all the social media platforms um, just because they control distribution. And if they want to show a New York Times article, they can show it. If they want to suppress it, they can suppress it. And so they were using that as the explanation for why you generally see only negative stories about tech in the media. And now when you think about like who is being affected the most by AI-related layoffs, if journalists are on the front lines of that stuff, then all of a sudden, like, you know, look, uh, I, I think th that this is a really serious issue, but then there's also going to be this extra layer of bias, like journalists don't like what's going on here. And they are the ones, at least in the transient, they're going to be the ones with the microphones. So it's going to be interesting to see like that lens on it where, you know, they are, they are the story now, like they are intimately tied to what's happening transformationally in the economy and, uh, and how reporting is going to reflect that. I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to track. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I do think it's worth noting that, for instance, BuzzFeed just killed off its news division. So BuzzFeed, it seems, is pivoting towards doing more of this listicle, kind of fluffy... Yeah, 10 reasons not even, why. Yeah. yeah, not even journalism, just like articles. Uh, and CNET is tech reporting. So that's kind of more news reporting than, let's say, journalism coverage that's critical and editorializes and so on. So I think that's where the job loss is, you know, being hit hardest, where you're not necessarily a professional journalist who is doing interviews and governing resources and blah, blah, blah. It's more sort of like template articles of press releases and, you know, cute little uh, summaries of things, but still. It, it yeah. is true, but I, I will say there's a, a great book by Ryan Holiday uh, called Trust Me, I'm Lying that like goes over how, you know, what journalism it turns into in a context where every, like the pressure, the economic pressures from social media and whatnot 
kind of caused this like race to the bottom where everyone has to be like blog monkeys. And I, so I think like the, the median experience for journalists, this is not the case for a journalist at the New York Times, for example, or like Wall Street Journal, um, but for, you know, BuzzFeed journalists, let's say, is very much like you're, you're pumping out content that's fairly generic. And uh, maybe this is just to say exactly what you said, Andre, like, you know, those kinds of jobs that, that are kind of the, the, fat, the fatty underbelly of this, this whole ecosystem, uh, those are really at risk here. Yeah, already we were just talking about this fourteen percent productivity boost, and oh no, we will be talking about this fourteen percent productivity boost, and yeah, we're gonna see it everywhere. I think in the coming months, more and more stories like this. And next, we have Price Waterhouse Coopers announces multi-year one billion investment into generative AI. So, the accounting and consulting giant uh, Price Waterhouse Coopers has announced that it plans to invest $1 billion in generative AI with Microsoft and ChatGPT, mainly to help automate aspects of its tax auditing and consulting services. You know, not too much on this yet. This is an announcement of what it's planning to do, but it seems to follow on the heels of things like uh, Intuit, the owner of TurboTax, also building its own generative AI language model for financial uh, management. So yeah, a lot of IT and you know financial stuff, it seems, will also be impacted by AI. Yeah, it's funny to see that there's like this big race uh, among the consulting companies to, to all kind of position themselves as knowing something about generative AI, which is, I guess, pretty much what you'd expect. Because um, I, I think Boston Consulting Group had uh, an announcement a few, I think it was a, maybe a few weeks or maybe about a month ago, where they said that you know they had a, a partnership brewing with OpenAI, and we, we've seen sort of similar things with with other uh, kind of big four consulting firms and things like that. So interesting that consulting is is um, becoming a focus, and and it certainly is an interesting channel, I think, for a lot of these generative AI companies. Because if you know if you're getting the consultants to advocate for your particular generative model, then you know that's a sales channel, and I, I wonder how much of a factor that is too. Yeah, and uh, related to that, it, I found this interesting. The article mentioned that in a survey of about 500 corporate IT decision makers uh, conducted by the firm Enterprise Technology Research, 53% of those decision makers said they plan to evaluate, use, or allocate resources to chat GPT specifically, right? <laughs> Which, wow, I mean, that is impressive, right? That's a brand. That is a brand. And moving away a bit from language models and LP, the next story is Walmart turns to warehouse robots suggests a boost in profit is possible. So another announcement uh, by the end of 2023, about a third of Walmart, Walmart stores will be served by distribution centers where warehouse robots do much of the work. So Walmart is investing in this sort of automation that uh, is involved in warehousing. So it's things like picking up goods uh, from trucks, loading and unloading, uh, then moving them uh, to shelves, sorting cases and uh, storing them, recording which items are where. Basically, a lot of the stuff that people have been doing, literally like unloading goods from a truck, you know, it has been done by humans. It's backbreaking labor, and yeah, now a lot of the stuff that involves just moving goods around in a store is 
being automated. Yeah, and the distribution centers uh, specifically too. It's kind of interesting. I, I wonder how this compares as well to Amazon, just because I, I know you know you got those famous um, videos of like the Amazon factory floor or not factory floor, but the the distribution centers with all these these robots. Um, and in, in a context where Walmart's got to be competing with Amazon so closely, like the margins are so tight, um, it's it's surprising. You know, it would be surprising if they were that far behind. Um, but uh, kind of a well, it looks like a bold move. I mean, they're they're talking about moving from uh, a third of Walmart stores that are going to be surfaced by automated distribution centers to in three years from that, sixty five percent. So like doubling the uh, the amount of service they're the auto, the amount of automated services that they're getting. It's pretty uh, pretty wild. Yeah, and also within three years, the unit cost of moving goods will fall by twenty percent due to this warehouse robot. So that's. That's a big deal, right? That's anything you go to buy at Walmart is gonna maybe cost a bit less as a result. So uh, yeah, worth worth remembering. Robots are also kind of part of this whole AI moment, although definitely not quite as much right now. Next, we have GPT may be trademarked soon if OpenAI has its way. So we've seen a million GPTs, uh, so things like Frat GPT, Medical GPT, Day GPT, I don't know, there's literally hundreds, I'm sure. And OpenAI has uh, applied for a trademark for the phrase GPT uh, in December. They petitioned to speed up a process last month <laughs> because of hundreds of GPTs and unfortunately the petition was dismissed because they failed to pay an associated fee uh, but still the application is ongoing so there is a you know still a pretty good chance that they might be able to trademark GPT. Yeah I wonder if that failing to pay the fee it wasn't specific in the article but I wonder if that was accidental or, or intentional if it was accidental i was like oh you know somebody's gotten fired anyway yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it, there, i think there was a through line to this article that was kind of interesting where they had this this lawyer kind of talking about the situation and, and he was pointing out you know, normally when you're gonna you know put in a claim for copyright or something like that or trademarking you have to gradually build up your brand in the marketplace but ChatGPT or GPT as a term is kind of weird because it was unknown to everybody until last year, and ChatGPT just overnight like brought the kind of term into the the limelight. And at the end of the article, they they kind of go like, "Hmm, it's kind of curious that they waited so long to protect the GPT brand." And uh, and here they were speculating kind of for similar reasons. Yeah, maybe, I think they were probably just caught off guard by their own success. And all of a sudden, you know, GPT, which used to be this niche thing, GPT-1, GPT-2, GPT-3, you know, that, that only researchers knew about, all of a sudden, everybody's talking about it. And, uh, you know, through, through no fault of anyone's, but now they have to do some catch up. And another piece of evidence in favor of what Sam Altman has said many times, that ChatGPT just completely took OpenAI by surprise. And um, anyway, yeah, it's a, it's a weird feature of AI that products can explode so quickly. And then you have to figure out the infrastructure and the trademarking kind of as part of the cleanup afterwards. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I guess I don't know if there's really big ramifications from this. And, you know, just don't name your things XGPT, whatever. That's reasonable enough. Although, yeah, there are some kind of 
funny details to this. Or for instance, GPT stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer. So it's literally a technical term. Uh, and it was from a research paper, right? So a lot of papers build off of this and have GPT in, in them. Uh, so it's it'll be an interesting case of trademarking, basically a research term as part of your brand now. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think the article mentioned that they didn't like expect that necessarily to be an obstacle because they they gave some example. I forget what it was, but it, like of a different acronym that was trademarked. I think it, and IBM, yeah. IBM, right, right. M being machines, is it? yeah, yeah, yep. right. So like, yeah, you can't trademark the word machines, but you can trademark the acronym IBM. I wonder if, uh, yeah, I wonder if that same play will work here. Uh, okay, and now uh, we're moving on to projects and open source, and we kind of touched on this theme of like law quite a bit um, and and not legal threats, but legal procedure, this is a legal threat. So we're in open source. We're going to focus on the tool, but then we'll tell you about the legal threat behind it. Uh, so there is this technique, that you, this tool rather, that you can use called GPT for free, all one word. Um, and it's it's up on, on GitHub. Basically what this repo does is it allows you to access, well, GPT-4 for free. How does it do that? Well, Normally, you have to pay to access GPT-4, but there are a bunch of companies like U.com, for example, that runs a search engine that uses GPT-4. And you can go to U.com and actually use it as a search engine for free, and they kind of foot the bill. And so what this does is it basically gets to GPT-4 via these companies that are willing to foot the bill for their users. And um, you know, you, you could argue about whether this is abusing U.com's generosity in allowing their users to access GPT-4 for free. There are a bunch of companies, a bunch of these intermediates that uh, GPT for free uses. And so now OpenAI is saying, whoa, 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 you can't do that. We're going to come in and threaten you with a lawsuit uh, over, well, it's, this is kind of where things get complicated, right? They're going after the, the guy who made the repo, this guy X-Techie. So, and they're saying like, hey, you, you can't just let people access GPT-4 for free via these services. But OpenAI, it seems to still be getting paid because U.com is footing the bill here. And so I'm, I'm curious about like maybe what standing they have in this context to, to make those threats or, or pursue this case. I would have expected like, U.com, for example, to tell them to take down the repo. Um, I would expect Quora or some, some of these other intermediaries, but instead it's OpenAI itself. And I think that's at the core of what makes this case uh, sort of complex and, and especially odd. Yeah, definitely. Reading the details here, it is pretty surprising that OpenAI is the one going after them and not U.com, but it's actually footing the bill, as you said, or Quora. Um, and I guess it's still up. Uh, so if you want to use GPT-4 for free, uh, this article that we linked to uh, Tom's Hardware, I think, has the details. It's pretty easy to set up, and you can just run it on Windows and have access to GPT-4. So I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's a good legal argument for um, for OpenAI to be the one kind of arguing that this should be shut down. Yeah, the best I could think was like maybe, you know, maybe OpenAI might insist on U.com, including in their terms of service, a thing that says, if you try to access, you know, GPT-4 for free through our service, then OpenAI can sue you or something like that, like OpenAI forcing terms of service on 
these intermediaries that then allow them to have legal say. I, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. This is not legal advice. You shouldn't listen to me for anything. <laughs> we don't know anything. Okay, <laughs> we don't know anything. Uh, but but you know, if we did, if we did, maybe we'd have an opinion that's stronger than this. But in any case, this seems like a weird case, just kind of on the surface of it. And um, yeah, kind of kind of odd. The the other thing that the guy points out, you know, in, in his defense, is he says like, look, um, I'm willing to stop using you.com if you.com comes knocking at my door. I'm, I'm willing to stop using Quora if Quora comes, comes knocking at my door. And he says, in fact, I've had a bunch of people do that. Like a bunch of intermediaries that I was using, they came to me and said, hey, knock it off. And I did. So like, what, what is OpenAI doing kind of intruding? And, and you know, so it's, it's really unclear. I think there's a lot of, um, OpenAI may have a totally legitimate case here. I think there's a lot of data we don't have about the back end and how everything's routed or whatever. But uh, anyway, another one for the, the legal history books here. Yeah, perhaps unsurprisingly, this is quite a popular project. So maybe that's part of why OpenAI responded right. so dramatically. It got 14,000 stars on github and it's funny how stars are now actually a metric you care about like yeah, yeah gpt auto gpt and now this are both like tools that people use that went viral and got a bunch of stars it's yeah i don't know it's kind of funny and let's talk about stability ai again just like we did the last couple of weeks so stability ai launches a deployed if a high performance uh, text-to-image model with advanced integration capabilities so this is a new text-to-image model right we've had many of them and this one is kind of in many ways uh, state of art so it uh, has some you know, better details you can more accurately tell it where to Put things so you can have text descriptions to generate images with various objects in different spatial relations, and so and so on. And now the model's weights are available on Deployed's uh, Hugging Face space. Uh, the code is on GitHub, and it's available on a non-commercial, research permissible license. So yeah, another really powerful text image model that is fully open source. Yeah, I, I thought there was this one um, axis that it's it's differentiated along, which apparently is how uh, photorealistic it is in generating images. And one of the things that they listed, they're like, it's got um, uh, an impressive zero shot FID score of 6.66. And if you're like me and you're going FID score, what's that? Because you never did a degree or a PhD in, in uh, computer vision stuff like Andre here, uh, you might just have to Google FID, which is Frische Inception Distance, which is actually kind of a cool concept. And Andre, I want you to slap me in the face if I get this wrong. Let me try. So it's something like um, when you when the model takes in or generates rather an image, um, you take that image and you feed it to to the model. You look at how it's it's represented inside the model, and you compare that representation to like real images, and you look at like the distance between those images, those representations, how different are the internal representations of the model? Am I, am, I, am I remotely on track here, Andre? To be honest, I'll be honest, I haven't worked on image generation, so I'm very, I don't know how the details. How dare you, sir? I know, I know. I am supposed to be the 
researcher guy here, but that particular metric I'm not too aware of. And I always see it. And I'm like, oh, that looks like a nice number. <laughs> okay, well, that's actually kind of, I think in itself, that's kind of useful, right? Like, because, you know, you read about these metrics and you kind of go like, oh man, I should really know about that. But they're often so neat, like metrics for generative modeling are really hard. Like it's so hard to take like an image and come up with a metric that's like, here's how good this image is that I just generated. And same for, for text, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's part of why I don't care too much about the numbers. I mean, the numbers are good insofar as you know you compare them side by side right. and one of them gets better or worse. But really, still looking at the outputs is the ultimate way to get a feel for how uh, good it is. And yeah, this is a very good open source model. It is uh, you know a new kind of architecture, very heavily uh, inspired by Google's Imagine from last year. So Imagine is kind of a very simple model that mainly just uses a large language model and has a pretty simple architecture. Last year, it was very impressive. It added the ability to do text well, which at the time, Dali and, and other things were not great at. So yeah, this is kind of an open source replication of that. And if you're in uh, research, you can use it, but I guess it is a non-commercial license. And that was just the first thing Stable AI has released this last week. They also released Stable Vicuna, which is the uh, world's first open source reinforcement learning from human feedback LLM chatbot. <laughs> Bit of a mouthful, but basically uh, ChatGPT and all these chatbots are taking a language model like GPT-3 and doing some sort of fine tuning with human feedback. So one of those ideas is reinforcement learning from human feedback. Basically, you train the language model, which just does text prediction, to do text prediction that matches what people want to see in chats and sort of like what is actually good behavior in a chatbot and what isn't. And most of the open source things we've seen have been large language models. They have not seen have been these chatbots that have been fine-tuned with human feedback. Now we have stable Vicuna, which has been. It, it is building off of the Vicuna model, which is a language model. And now we have stable Vicuna, which has been um, yeah, trained with human feedback and this whole kind of pretty detailed way. Yeah, and if you, if you check your calendar, you'll notice it's like early May right now as of the time we're recording. So this is like six months after, roughly, after ChatGPT first came out. So that's very consistent. Not that this is at the level of ChatGPT performance, but it's pretty consistent with what you tend to see is like the, you know, the, the cutting edge, you know, DeepMind, OpenAI, Meta, somebody is going to come up with this cutting edge proprietary model. And then usually within like, I don't know, like four to eight months, you start to see replications in the uh, in open source, and this is the you know first time, like you said, first time we've seen an, an RLHF implementation fully replicated. Obviously, not as good as uh, ChatGPT, but now the open source kind of quality is going to keep climbing along the RLHF axis. And uh, anyway, so it's sort of interesting to see. It's almost like a, a law of it's like a physical law of this ecosystem that uh, the time delay between the cutting edge development and then the uh, the open sourcing. I mean, it's pretty short. And um, uh, anyway, I, th I think pretty significant development. A lot of applications people will be able to put this to because the you know the things that you can only use these sorts of dialogue agents for are pretty numerous. And 
that's what accounts for ChatGPT's success. So it'd be kind of interesting to see how people start to use this. Yeah. And I also think it's it's cool and, and kind of interesting to see if you look a little bit more into the details. I mentioned that they do this fine tuning with a mixture of free data sets. They use the Open Assistant uh, Conversations data set. And we discovered Open Assistant, I think, last week or two weeks ago as another open source effort. They used Alpaca, which is a data set of 52,000 instructions and demonstrations. And they use GPT for all prompt generations. So it kind of also highlights how there is a real ecosystem of open source. You know, one open source project really feeds into another. You've seen so many things uh, building off of, uh, I think, uh, Llama, was it, from Meta? Yeah. Yeah, so many things are being built on top of one thing. And yeah, this is just yet another component in this whole ecosystem of open source parts and models that are made possible by each other in a way. Yeah, you mentioned Llama. And in fact, Alpaca, which is what's being used here, is explicitly built on top of Llama. So it's like, it really is like the, the stack all the way down. And there's the, the RLHF component is specifically interesting because I think a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about how we're seeing not just open sourcing of models now, but open sourcing of like frameworks, like things that are designed to help you build RLHF bots. So we saw the, the framework that supports that a couple weeks ago, and now we're seeing the actual system that was, uh, I don't know if it was trained on that particular framework, but anyway, these things all are kind of proliferating together. Yeah. And I guess another kind of fun bit is um, they mentioned that they do the typical RLHF pipeline, and they mentioned specifically that they are following the recipe from OpenAI's paper. So last year on March 4th, and I totally forgot about this, Alongside announcing, uh, I think it wasn't even ChatGPT, it was still GPT 3.5, but they released a paper called Training Large Language Models to Follow Instructions with Human Feedback. And yeah, it outlined, you know, kind of specific techniques and so on. So (laughs) it reminds me of a different time when we used to uh, publish algorithms for GPT models. Uh, and just one last thing we'll mention before moving on, they are also announcing they're going to have a chatbot interface. So they have Dream Studio, not Midjourney, uh, for image art. And now there's going to be another chatbot interface that is going to be powered by an open source model, it looks like, at stability.ai. On to another open source model. We have Replete's new code LLM, open source, smaller than Codex, and trained in last week. So this was just announced. Uh, they are releasing a 3 billion parameter model that supports 20 languages, was trained, uh, and a bunch of stuff, and is released under a very permissive license that allows for commercial use. And it appears to be the best open source model for code completion out there and uh, fairly competitive with um, commercial offerings. Yeah, it's really interesting as the space shapes up. You know, you're, maybe your, your coding models, you get diminishing returns on you know, greater and greater scale, greater and greater investment. And if that's the case, you know, it's going to be hard for some of these companies, perhaps, to compete in the face of free open source alternatives. Um, I, like, I, I don't know which way this actually ends up going. Maybe there is, in fact, a moat with scale here. But uh, this is definitely an indication that, you know, 
pretty uh, pretty effective small model building is is highly possible. Replit is one of the darlings of Silicon Valley, I and mean, we talked about them in a previous episode. Um, their CEO and, and co-founder, maybe maybe their solo founder, I'm not sure, is this guy Amjad Massad, who's very excited about AI. In fact, I think he he almost framed Replit not quite as like an AGI company, but as as you know, kind of on that spectrum, let's say. And uh, it's really interesting to see them choose to release this. Replit really is this like environment where you can, it makes it really easy to spin up a coding environment. That was what got them off the ground. They'd have like kids using them because it was so easy. They didn't have to like install a whole like, you know, Python environment or whatever the coding language was they wanted to use. They could just get straight to coding. And now they're focusing on, in a sense, another layer of the user experience, which is helping people generate code more easily. And they've done a lot of really interesting product launches in that direction. Very fast moving and impressive company. Yeah. Boy, I'm glad we added this section for projects in open source because <laughs> a lot is happening. Moving on to research and advancements. Uh, first, we have a pretty cool story. Uh, first real world study showed generative AI boosted worker productivity by 14%. So this uh, study is titled Generative AI at Work from the Stanford G- Digital Economy Lab and the Stanford Human AI Institute. And it studied the impact of generative AI in the context of uh, customer service at a call center. And this is, you know, a proper economics study in the sense that it it took place over many months. It uh, had 5,179 customer support agents have these converse, uh, chatbot type tools. Now, this is back in early 2021 this is pre chat gpt this is like you know gpt free <laughs> the dark uh, ages the dark ages of when we just had gpt free uh, but even you know they collected the data and they saw that on average there in terms of issues resolved per hour there was a 14% jump in productivity uh, which especially impacted novice and low-skilled workers. First study of its kind, right? And clearly indicative of what we'll be seeing this year as companies adopt ChatGPT and Moss. 100%, yeah. And, and one of the big questions with AI is always like, yeah, but so what? You know, yeah, you have this this amazing bot. It scores really well on all these metrics, but how does that translate into real-world use? And this is a pretty clear indication that for a very wide, you know, large category of jobs. You know, I mean, we're, we're talking here about, you know, there, there got to be millions and millions of these jobs um, in the US alone. You, know, like you, you, you can really make a, a real dent. So this is a lot of economic value being unlocked with just this one thing. Like you said, 2021 is a long time ago. We have open source models now that are starting to get on the heels of chat GPT levels of, of, uh, of quality or capability. And, you know, it remains to be seen what that pretends, but definitely seems like a harbinger of what's to come. Yeah, and yeah, customer support—it's—it's it's a big job category. Like it is, kind of millions of jobs, and they have some figures here, and it shows you know basically it's pretty intuitive. You get a message from uh, you know someone asking for assistance in text, and the chatbot can suggest a response. And instead of typing it out, you can just you know click yeah, use this, and it's easy to see how. You could go way beyond fourteen percent. I think uh, with the improved technology, we will probably see pretty impressive numbers. So, 
still, it's it's a pretty detailed study. It's like sixty pages, uh, lots of different evaluations and findings. Uh, so, yeah, cool to see. You know, the initial kind of results on these types of models, even if it's not ChatGPT specifically. Yeah, and I, I just googled it, and it's like two point nine million uh, customers support jobs in the U.S. according to this website bls.gov, which is .gov, so it's got to be true. And uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, I mean that's like a freaking metric crap ton of jobs, and fourteen uh, percent. You know, like if you think about it, fourteen percent of of like you know two or three million um, is uh, is Jeremy doing math in real time is around 400,000 or 500,000, something like that. So you're talking about like the equivalent of automating 500,000 jobs worth of work in a sense. That is an immense, like if you could actually pull that off at scale, if you could, there are always challenges with doing that, but like that alone is a giant economic delta. Yeah. Wow, this week, <laughs> very much uh, kind of mind-blowing how quickly the economy is probably going to be hit this year, I think. All right, and next we have Lamini. Lamini, I'm not exactly how to, sure how to pronounce that. Lamini. I, Lam- oh my God, of course. You know, that's the problem with these freaking models. You guys have to, in the, in the research community, you guys got to sharpen up. Give us something easier to pronounce. Anyway, if you if you looked at it, there's like a capital L, there's a capital N, like nobody knows what the hell's going on here. Lamini LM, a diverse herd of distilled models from large scale instructions. If you say that 10 times fast, it starts to make sense. Anyway, the point here is it's another example in a long line of examples that we've seen on the podcast before of like noticing how you can take a really large, sometimes proprietary model and replicate pretty close to its performance in a much, much smaller model by getting the bigger model to produce training data that that you then use to train the smaller model to replicate its performance. And what's interesting here is it's a case of instruction fine-tuning, so teaching their AI model to basically follow instructions, which is a really important task and something that you, you need quite a bit of training data for. And so what they do is they they send a bunch of, of hand-generated instructions to GPT 3.5 Turbo. So basically a proprietary, super souped-up, powerful model. And they use it to generate a bunch of synthetic instructions and synthetic responses. They end up this, this is like absolutely massive data set with like two and a half million pairs of instructions and responses. And now that they've got that synthetic data set, which again, they got from a proprietary model, they can use it to train their own model. And their own model being about 10 times smaller in size and scale than GPT 3.5 was. And so this is kind of interesting. Like They find that the performance is, is quite favorable to the original model in, in doing this. And the, like the implications here, first off, for open sourcing, right? Like if you have a, a really powerful proprietary model, well, you can, in a sense, kind of steal a lot of its performance and, and capability by following this process. All you need is inputs and outputs to that model. As long as you can access its outputs and give it inputs, you can kind of replicate its performance in a much smaller, much cheaper system. So for from the standpoint of proliferation, from the standpoint of you know the power of open source versus proprietary, this is definitely an, an interesting data point. And um, anyway, I, like I, I just thought it was it was kind of cool that there's a specific training strategy that they use. It's a little bit different from what people typically use to train these systems. Um, instead of getting their smaller model to like replicate the 
the activations of the neurons in uh, GPT 3.5, for example. So just like the human brain, you know, our neurons sometimes fire when we're exposed to certain stimuli, and that reflects our, our thought process in a sense. Uh, these AI models, same thing works with these deep learning models. So some neurons in them fire and, and some less so. And so sometimes when you want to replicate the behavior of a deep learning model, you might actually train your um, student model to replicate the activations of those neurons in addition to the output. Here, they're just focusing on replicating the output, and they use uh, a kind of somewhat rarer strategy to uh, to pull that off. So anyway, kind of interesting. Again, I think a, a really uh, a really great example of how powerful the open source um, kind of toolbox is in terms of replicating uh, proprietary models. Yeah, exactly, and uh, I think. As you said, and they highlight a little bit, I think the fact that you can go and have performance equivalent to Alpaca 7 billion, Alpaca being this open, you know, openly accessible uh, ChatGPT-esque model that was fine-tuned, they can get similar performance, or actually the same performance on average at 1.5 billion parameters instead of 7 billion. So to me, this has been a pretty surprising trend over the last few months. Uh, that you know, GPT three, everything up to there, and even after that, you know, it was always scale, scale and yeah. model size and data size, and we are still getting more data. But somehow it turns out that if you instruction tune your language model, the model itself can be you know comparatively small. Like one point five billion is smaller than GPT two, right? Uh, but yeah. it's performing way at a way higher rate. So that is very interesting. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's just one of the findings from this paper. And as you said, this whole the implications of being able to um, create, basically replicate instruction tuning from a closed model by just using it is, is pretty pretty significant as far as you know what you can do in industry and where you can have an advantage or not. Next, AI has better bedside matter than some doctors study finds. So a little bit related to that uh, customer assistance story, this one looked into uh, can an AI chatbot assistant provide responses to patient questions that are of comparable quality and empathy to those written by physicians. And in this study, of 195 randomly drawn patient questions from uh, the subreddit Ask Docs. Uh, a team of health professionals compared the responses of physicians and chatbots, and uh, the chatbots' responses were preferred over physician responses and rated significantly higher for both quality and empathy, which is... Uh, Maybe surprising. I mean, definitely kind of dramatic. Uh, so there's various kind of reasons that this paper goes into. Part of it was definitely that basically physicians are human and probably tired and just didn't have the energy. Their responses were typically much shorter, 52 words versus chatbots, which are 211. So lots of you know, reasons why this may be the case and obviously probably some uh, implications from this. Yeah. And it really raises that philosophical question of like, what does it mean for an AI to reach human level capability? Because yeah, sure. You know, there's a question of like, 
can this chatbot compete with a doctor who's refreshed and rested and well-fed and so on? And that'll probably give a different answer. But then the question is like, how does it compete relative to a, a doctor in their sort of natural environment, stressed out and hungry and tired and so on? And um, yeah, I, I think there were a couple of, of uh, data points that were interesting. First off, like you said, the magnitude of the difference. Apparently, they say evaluators preferred chatbot responses to physician responses in 78.6% of cases. Like the vast majority of the time, the chatbot, this is not a close race. Um, and the evaluators themselves, like these are like licensed medical professionals. So these are people who know what the right answers are and how they presumably ought to be delivered. Um, they also mentioned that the mean physician responses were significantly shorter than chatbot responses. And when they say significant, they mean like a quarter of the length. So it was like yep. 52 words, right? To like over 200. So, yep. you know, that, that in itself, you kind of think like, how often would you love for your doctor to be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more patient with you to give you maybe a longer explanation People often complain about ChatGPT for being too long-winded. Well, maybe this is a case where people appreciate that little bit of extra information and therefore, you know, all the better a use case for the chatbot. Yeah, and I think unlike the customer support story, maybe this is a good thing in the sense that, you know, it is the case that probably physicians are just tired and you know, have a lot of work and may not be able to, in general, have good bad side matter by default. So you could easily see this being a tool for a doctor to be like, let me draft up a response with this AI assistant. They still kind of have a final uh, call on what they send and they can edit the message and so on, but they just don't have to do it entirely by themselves. So, um, not you know a fully you know clinical trial or anything not uh, super formal medical study but definitely interesting yeah it's um it's also interesting the kinds of industries where you see uh, these things come in and, and just be obviously beneficial versus just automating people's jobs and lives away you know when you, when you think back like you said to that customer service example that's an unregulated market where you know pretty much anybody can float in very very commoditized like one customer service rep can be swapped out with somebody else with relatively little training whereas you look at a highly regulated environment like medicine like law you know, people very often overworked overburdened and that's where these things can have maybe and I'm no economist um, but when it comes to AI, I guess neither are economists. No one's ever really seen this stuff before. Uh, but anyway, in, in more regulated markets, maybe it's the case that you start to see these uh, systems kind of create more actual surplus and value in a way that's less ethically fraught, less less disruptive to the workforce and more just pure value additive. Yeah. So another kind of pretty dramatic finding that probably will have implications. And uh, let's wrap up with just quickly mentioning a few more stories we will not go into very deeply. One story is machine learning and metabolite analysis can predict individual body clock timing. So this is showing how you can basically figure out the body time in the circadian rhythm with a combination of machine learning and this, uh, you know, metabolite analysis with less usage of blood samples than before. Next, we have another story called Image Generation AI for predicting the deformation of splashing drops, where they could you know, use AI to just predict how 
drops will deform with images. Uh, so kind of a weird take on physics. Can, can I just jump in on that one? Because sorry, yeah. my, my background in physics, I know this sounds really messed up. Okay, I know it sounds messed up. But I got really excited about the the drops with the splashing and the AI and the stuff. Uh, so first off, this is a really funny like <laughs> article in a certain sense, because they opened the article by saying, the impact of a drop on a solid surface is an important phenomenon that has blah, 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 blah. When the drop splashes, it can cause soil erosion, dispersal of plant pathogens, deterioration of printing and paint qualities, and many other blah, 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 blah. And as they're going through all of the things that a, you know, that a drop splashing can be associated with, and very clearly not mentioning urinals, which I thought was the very first thing <laughs> that this article would have to be about. So this, of course, prompted me to go down a rabbit hole to look into what I thought I remembered as being the very significant scientific and physics debate around the physics of urinals. And it turns out there's like this whole open like debate around like what's the best shape and structure for your like the amount of thought time that has gone in. This is an AGI complete problem is urinals. Anyway, the 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 one thing I want I wanted to flag about this that's I think quite interesting is people have actually tried to use machine learning to solve this particular problem before. The reason vision seems to work better is that uh, it's it's this like intrinsically chaotic thing. There's so much going on. People used to try to like like use just a few parameters to describe the splashing of drops, but it turns out that like this is not a clean process. There're just too many moving parts and you have to go to the whole image. That's the only way you're going to capture all the data you need to actually like replicate the movement of the drop or kind of understand it. And just last little comments. I'm sorry, I'm going off the wall here. Last go little comment. Have fun. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm sorry, everybody. Hopefully, you, hopefully you forgive us. Um, so the last thing I'll say is there is this really interesting, like philosophical question about the difference between physics and machine learning, and it, it basically physics. You can think of it as the ultimate compression. Like you take all the complexity of, of the world and you try to compress it down into just a couple of equations that describe how your whole system is going to behave. And that works really well for a large range of systems. In fact, if we ever solved physics and had like a universal theory of everything, that theory, that equation, those equations would basically be an AGI because they would allow you to predict, predict the future with as high a confidence as it is possible to do. Um, but some problems right now are just too complex. They have too many moving parts to be compressed in a physics-like way. And this is one of those problems. And so there's this interesting dividing line. Again, I'm so sorry I'm talking about peeing in the context of this fundamental question, but there is this really interesting dividing line between problems that look more like physics and are very compressible and problems that look more like machine learning and are more chaotic. And this is one of them. And I'm done talking about peeing. I'm so, so sorry. I will. I I see why you're excited. I mean, it's it's it is interesting that you can predict very complex physical phenomena with just predicting image sequences, which is what this is doing. Yeah, I mean, we can all imagine that predicting the behavior of water is pretty crazy, and the fact that you can just train or a model pee. to do it, or well, that's kind of implied. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> The last story in research is drones can fly themselves with a warm inspired AI software. And again, we'll just go by this one pretty quick. So this is about 
the notion of liquid neural networks, liquid time constant networks, which is kind of pretty fancy and is very much of a new concept. This is a class of time continuous recurrent neural network models that are uh, dynamic, so they respond to uh, inputs from the behavior. It would get pretty technical if we get into it, so I don't think we want to do that. But the short story is this showed an application of that kind of formulation, which is just a few years old, to navigating a drone and doing some things like flying to things or um, rotating or you know generally controlling a drone. I don't see a good urine angle here, so uh, it doesn't hold my interest as well as it would. But it does I mean, seem it like a <laughs> liquid time constant networks. Uh, That's a good point. That is a good urine angle. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> let's let's uh, yeah. Let's maybe uh, end it at that and move on. All right, and uh, policy and safety time. This one is urine free. The story is ChatGPT 3.5 generates more disinformation in Chinese than in English. And this is a pretty simple story. It's, it's almost all in the headline. Um, basically, there's this organization called NewsGuard, and um, they went and prompted ChatGPT in English to try to get it to say some, you know, some false things, things about the Hong Kong protests, things about COVID-19. And they found that in English... ChatGPT would decline to answer those kinds of prompts, would decline to generate like false statements six out of seven times that they tried. Whereas if they prompted it in Chinese, they got answers seven out of seven times. Uh, and then they give a bunch of examples of these things. You know, they have to do with like, again, COVID-19, uh, Xinjiang, uh, Uyghur stuff. And um, just one of the things I, I found interesting here was that it does seem to imply that Whatever safety checks OpenAI has baked into ChatGPT, we know they've they've worked really hard to do this. They seem not to generalize terribly well, or at least at the time this article came out, they may have been fixed since, but they seem not to generalize terribly well to other languages. So there's some language sensitivity to the safety checks. I don't know if that's a, a an RLH, a reinforcement learning from human feedback thing, or a fine tuning thing. We don't really know, but it's it's an interesting note that this is yet another kind of I don't want to call it an adversarial attack or a hack or something like that, but it's another degree of freedom that you have if you want to get these systems to spew whatever you want. Yeah, no, that is an interesting point. And I guess it's not necessarily surprising, right, that it would say the things that you would tend to read in Chinese when you talk to it in Chinese, but uh, I guess it's good to have an empirical verification of that and to be mindful of it, right? That and in a way, this also kind of does remind us that ChatGPT isn't sentient or isn't sort of like a, a person, right? It has no internal beliefs because if you asked it about one this thing in English, what it says may be different than what, what it says if you ask it in Chinese or in another language, right? Because it's it's a language model. So I don't know. That is kind of a, in a weird way. I think reminds me uh, philosophically how it's a human. You know, if you speak two languages, you will presumably say the same kind of response regardless of language, given the same question. That, that is a really interesting point, right? Because we saw the opposite point made. I think I've referred to this tweet like thirty times on this podcast before. Like Jan Leica, the head of alignment at OpenAI, had that tweet where he was like. 
Um, hey, you know, uh, just a, a, a reminder to everybody, chat GPT, or sorry, maybe it was GPT-3 at the time, I forget. Um, it can it can generate text in some obscure language with very, very little training data. And we don't know how that could be true, like why that's the case. It seems to be able to generalize based on what it's learned in English to perform in this new language. But this is not, not a point in the opposite direction, but it's a nudge in the opposite direction that says, yeah, but its behavior in this other language could be different too. And that might speak to the distribution of the training data. You know, Maybe the, the, the Chinese language text on the internet is disproportionately going to reflect what you know, state-run Chinese media like the Global Times will put out, whereas you know, who knows how the corpus is distributed, I guess. That's kind of the bottom line. Um, and, and that may be playing into this as well. So that fundamentally, when you prompt ChatGPT with something in Chinese, you are kind of activating a different sub-persona within the bot. And um, anyway, like anybody's guess as to what, what's actually going on there, but it's, uh, it's a fun time to be probing at these models. It is. Next, we have uh, a story about the paper, the alignment problem from a deep learning perspective. So this was submitted to the conference ICML. Uh, it's kind of, from what I can see, an, an overview of alignment uh, research. ICML is one of the very prestigious conferences in machine learning, kind of a top tier conference. And the reason we're covering it as a, as a story is that Last week, I think about a week ago, the decisions uh, about whether papers would be accepted or rejected came out, and this one was rejected, and one of the offers um, pretty much posted about it on Twitter, and there was a bit of a discussion, uh, and the offer here, Richard Ngo, is from OpenAI also. So uh, yeah, spread about the discussion in the AI community. Yeah, Richard, no, uh, yeah, specifically on the safety team at OpenAI and, and very prominent in kind of education around AI on, on Twitter as well as elsewhere. And yeah, his this was a really interesting, I think, both paper and sort of the, the meta discussion on Twitter. So, you know, first focusing in on the paper, this is really uh, a paper that addresses, I think, something that was missing in the AI safety world. So we have all these arguments about why AI is likely to be catastrophically dangerous as its capabilities increase. And these are things like power seeking, um, which has a more technical name or, or an equally technical name called instrumental convergence. Uh, basically, that you know, AIs will tend to converge on behaviors like uh, self-preservation, self-improvement, things like that. And there's a bunch of really interesting theoretical and empirical research that suggests that's the default behavior of powerful AI systems. There are other arguments with names like outer alignment, inner alignment, and so on. But those arguments are often made kind of at the abstract level, talking about an AI system broadly with certain properties that are not specific to deep learning systems. And so what this paper is trying to do is to say, okay, let's look at the properties of deep learning models, how they're currently being trained, and try to extrapolate to see if these risks that others have flagged for AI systems in general should be expected to apply to deep learning systems in particular. The answer seems to be yes. I think it's a really compelling paper. I highly, highly recommend that people check it out if you're looking for that just deep dive into you know what is catastrophic AI risk, uh, what does that look like in deep learning systems? Um, but the interesting thing, like you said, it was rejected despite it was rejected by the uh, the uh, chairs, not because of the reviewers' responses. All the reviewers said, "Yeah, we think this is great. You should accept it." Instead, it was rejected because the chairs thought it was not empirical enough. 
And this is where the philosophical issue comes up. Richard No is saying, look, yeah, no, no shit, it's not empirical enough. We haven't had an AI catastrophe yet. What we're pointing out here is that that seems to be very much in the cards. And so shouldn't, if, if, if we're going to have this conversation anywhere, shouldn't like ICLR, one of the top AI conferences in the world, shouldn't that be an appropriate forum to be talking about this kind of risk? Um, so anyway, that's sort of like the, the gist of the argument here and, and a bit too far down the rabbit hole perhaps, but if you're uh, interested, no, check it's, out the... It, it's, it's, a, it's a definitely an interesting point of discussion within the AI community. Uh, just to clarify, ICML, not ICLR, <laughs> similar oh, acronym. Uh, and ICML, like this is more <laughs> of a position paper and I, ICML does apparently allow position papers. So position yeah. papers are basically like, you know, sort of arguments without a more scientific uh, experiment. It's it's sort of, you know, putting forth a position that may be somewhat speculative or maybe about something you don't understand too much. And um, yeah, what happened was they got really good reviews it was like you know 775 meaning uh, i think except except and maybe borderline a week except and it was only the chair so the ac uh there's like a, a, a set of several people who do reviews and then a, a final person who looks at all the reviews and makes a call and they argued that this paper wasn't empirical enough it was too speculative uh which uh yeah it Richard Ngo posted about this on Twitter, how this appears to be kind of an unfair standard, especially given that um, this is a position paper. And um, yeah, I think especially as a safety kind of in the perspective of AI safety research, so much of this we don't understand. The argument is you have to allow us to start with something that is a little more speculative and less quantitative um, because that's where we are and we need to be talking about this right now. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of airing of dirty laundry in the AI community these days, I feel like, with all the headlines. But, but yeah, you're right. I mean, th this is one of those things, I think, where some people feel really strongly that like AI catastrophic risk should not be discussed. Um, you know, the sort of like Yan LeCun way of thinking about things. And, you know, d depending on how charitable you're feeling uh, one day or the next, you, you might imagine that that could be part of what's behind this. There, it, it is so politicized in AI at the level of catastrophic risk. You know, is it real? Should we ignore it? Should we laugh at it? Or should we take it seriously? Um, that, that, you know, I can't help but read some of that into this. I could potentially be very wrong. And if I am, I very much apologize. But it's something that at least you got to keep in the back of your mind when you look at uh, decisions like this, especially given the, the reviewer's um, acceptance ratings. Uh, next story here is former OpenAI researcher. There is a 50% chance AI ends in, quotes, catastrophe. So this is another feel-good article about uh, Paul Cristiano. So I don't know if we, we explicitly talked about this as a story in, in weeks past, but there was a famous interview on the Bankless podcast that featured Eliezer Yudkowsky, who is everybody's favorite AI doomsayer, um, who is convinced that the world will be destroyed by advanced AI. And um, anyway, so, so they had him on, and it was a really kind of very uh, viral episode. People are talking about it all over the place. And so they kind of went, okay, well, let's talk to somebody else. Let's, let's get some other opinions about AI risk. And they call up Paul Cristiano. Paul Cristiano used to head up AI alignment at OpenAI. He since moved on to found the Alignment Research Center, or ARC, 
Um, they're famous for doing a bunch of AI capability evaluations and probing at GPT-4 to see if it could like self-replicate and do all kinds of other stuff. Um, but he's widely considered like <laughs> the as, as weird as it sounds, one of the optimists in the AI alignment community in terms of our prospects with these systems. And what does optimistic mean? Well, apparently it gets you to 50% probability that we're fucked. So um, sort of sort of interesting. He says, I think maybe there's something like a 10 to 20% chance of AI takeover um, with, with many or most humans dead. Uh, and then he says, you know, I think when you factor in uh, like malicious use and things going off the rails more broadly, maybe we're talking about, yeah, that like 50-50 number for, for catastrophe. So um, he, he actually added, I, I think this was for me, the, the main quote that I found interesting, uh, all things considered, he figures AI is the most likely thing that will kill him personally. So this is a guy of, I don't know what he is, like a like mid late thirties or something. And, and so he's of that view again, one of the most informed people when it comes to AI risk on planet earth. Uh, he's, he's not necessarily in the, there's not a consensus on this. But it's an interesting data point. And again, you know, another indication, you look at Jeff Hinton starting to raise the alarm and leaving Google for this and all the pioneers of the field or a lot of them kind of rallying around this. It's an interesting time for the catastrophic risk argument. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I agree. And and just to uh, make the quote a little bit more precise, uh, it was maybe we're talking about a 50-50 chance of a catastrophe shortly after we have systems at the human level. Right. And the argument here, I mean, there's different arguments, you know this better than I do, but uh, kind of one of the reasons people are worried is maybe once we reach some level of AI, that's really good, it will then exponentially improve itself and you know reach some kind of godlike status and it can kill us all pretty easily. Um, I, I would, you know, I wouldn't say this is the optimistic take. Maybe within the AI experts community, this this is being a little bit less worried. Um, still, I think I would say most people in the AI uh, world, more broadly, academia, are less worried about necessarily X risk, at least in the sense of let's say fifty percent. I think I would be more on you know, below 1% or something like that. Uh, but Oh, interesting. Yeah. You're below 1%. Okay. I, I would say below 1%. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's interesting seeing this as a new story because with that open letter and now this kind of article, I think inevitably, and it makes sense, we'll have a lot more discussions uh, about, you know, X risk and its likelihood. And at some point, I would really like to hear a, a nice you know, detailed analysis of how you can even come up with any sort of reasonable probability estimate. But that's yeah, what... well, so because we've actually for for the uh, the listeners, we, we've had chats about maybe setting up like a an AI alignment episode or something, having somebody on who can who can uh, join us in a conversation on that. So I don't know, maybe this is a, a good prompter for that. But uh, anyway, yeah, could be. And next we have lawmakers propose banning AI from single-handedly launching nuclear weapons. Uh, so, you know, kind of what it says. Uh, the DOD in the US already bans AI from autonomously launching nuclear weapons, but now a bipartisan group of lawmakers uh, has decided to make it even clearer uh, to codify even more concretely that it has to be done 
uh, you cannot fund anything, uh, any system to launch a nuclear weapon that uses an autonomous weapon that is not subject to meaningful human control. So, uh, you know, I guess pretty reasonable uh, to pass a law that says do not let an AI get near the nukes, pretty much. I don't know, Andre. I, I think we should be automating as much of the stack as we can. Um, yeah, no, it, it, this, this seems to make sense. Um, I think one of the, the big um, questions, and yeah, they, they tackle this in the, in the article. They're like, you know, if this is already something that's forbidden, why introduce the bill? And they're just pointing out, essentially, the, the, the purpose here is to really kind of solidify the commitment so as to potentially set a precedent for actors like Russia and China. You know, obviously, we have heightened tensions with those actors right now. And so the goal is to just be like, okay, like, you know, at least this is still off the table, right, guys? So um, hopefully that remains off the table. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. They link to this uh, bill and it's like five pages. You can you can read it. <laughs> so it's very concise and to the point. And uh, I, I would hope it passes, personally. I think it's this funny. is a good idea. When, when they want you to read and understand the bill, they can be very concise, but... <laughs> And this is by part bipartisan for the U.S. Right. I mean, that's that's pretty special. So everyone agrees, no AI near, near the nukes. I think. Yeah. <laughs> and on that uh, topic of U.S. politics, next we have Republicans counter Biden announcement with dystopian AI aided video. Uh, another quick story. So uh, President Biden announced he will be running for re-election in 2024, and the RNC or someone affiliated with Republicans released an ad that, you know, is your standard kind of a talk ad saying, oh, it will be, if I'm reelected, it'll be bad. And it has AI made images of uh, President Biden in it. Yeah. And I, I think just um, it like really a first, it, it's a first, it's going to be the first of many. I think Dem the Democrats might've put forward some sort of legislation. I think I saw a headline earlier today trying to ban uh, AI or not ban, uh, at least force people to flag when they've used AI to generate um, content for either ads or political ads specifically. I wish I remembered, but anyway, this is definitely you know taking center stage as it's directly related to politics. And um, I don't know if you saw the ad, uh, Andre, but I, I thought it was you know it, it looked really good, like in terms of the the photorealism of it. Um, pretty you know pretty compelling stuff. It makes the case like. Imagine a hypothetical world where, uh, you know, the, the weakest president we've ever had was reelected. Anyway, that's kind of the premise is like, look at this guy. He's so weak. Uh, what if he was reelected? And, um, and I think they're just using the imagery to make you imagine it more concretely. So it's not quite like they're, you know, showing you Joe Biden high-fiving uh, Xi Jinping or, or something like that. But, uh, but it, it's an aid to kind of help the narrative along. Yeah, and uh, yeah, definitely. Once again, this is an early example of what I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot of, which is especially for talk ads where you need to generate different clips or you know graphics or whatever. Um, just another yeah. ramification of having very very photorealistic AI, which we just just started having, really, you know, in the last however <laughs> yeah. many months, right? And on to another country, not the US, we have the UK will spend a hundred million pounds to develop its own sovereign AI. So 
Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the Technology Secretary have pledged an initial 100 million pounds to establish a foundation model task force that will develop an AI that will make the country globally competitive. Uh, not you know too specific. It's uh, just a task force and does seem to imply they're trying to get their own chat GPT up and going. Yeah, I was trying to understand if they meant that they were going to fund domestic labs or like basically have a nationalized AI project explicitly. Um, I don't know if you like I because I, I, I skimmed the article beforehand and I, I, it didn't seem to 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 clarify as between those two because um, one seems like it would be considerably more you know not alarming necessarily but noteworthy than than another still the fact that this is an issue of national sovereignty right like you can imagine being in the UK and you're seeing you know comp- companies in the US Google's Meta's uh, OpenAI's and so on all domestically developing their own large language models, US regulations can directly apply to them and so on. And these models are kind of reshaping society in fundamental ways and including UK society in fundamental ways. And the UK doesn't have policy levers, at least that they can apply domestically to, to deal with that. So you can see them wanting on a almost like nationalistic basis to uh, to be able to have some kind of policy influence on the, the course of that technology and how it's used. Yeah, yeah. It seems like here the idea is that uh, this task force will include a mix of people from basically AI experts to consult with the uh, prime minister, and then that can then, I guess, siphon funding to different things like labs, as far as I can tell. Foundation model infrastructure and public service procurement are the first kind of uh, focus areas. And by the way, foundation models, we haven't used the term very much. Oh, yeah, you're right. Here, but that's just giant, big, big models. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's a term that was introduced, I feel like, a year it was, ago. It was Stanford. It was a team from yeah, Stanford, it my was, friend. It was your, yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. I've just, it, it was introduced to kind of capture this whole movement of very, very powerful models trained on a, a lot of data. So that includes DALI and GPT and things like that. Still a, content, a contentious phrase, Term? foundation models. Yeah. yeah, not everyone likes it, but now the, the UK government is using it. So maybe yes, Stanford, maybe they got it. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess it's, yeah, so that, I guess that's it. It's it's not necessarily that they're building a kind of nationalized model, but trying to help accelerate national development, which, you know, still still very important. And we, we're going to see, I'm sure, similar uh, investments. You almost can start to think of this somewhat, not entirely, but somewhat like the CHIPS Act, where it's like all about onshoring of semiconductor fabrication in that case, here onshoring of AI model development and, um, you know, the, the national aspect here. Also interesting, like the US is leading in this. The UK is an ally of the US, very close one, but they still want this capability just because of the strategic implications. You want this stuff on short and they're pushing for it. Yep. And a, uh, a story that's actually kind of uh, near and dear to my day-to-day work, Kamala Harris to discuss AI in meeting with Google, Microsoft, OpenAI, and Anthropic CEOs. And so this was um, a pretty recent, I don't know, like today, yesterday, uh, day before, like very recently announced that uh, essentially they're going to have some kind of mini summit 
Um, there's not that much information in the article. I'll just read a, a short excerpt from it. It says, Harris will address the need for safeguards that can mitigate AI's potential risks and emphasize the importance of ethical and trustworthy innovation. So pretty boilerplate. Um, and then it says, the officials plan to engage in a, quotes, frank discussion with the CEOs about AI, particularly regarding risks stemming from, quotes, current and near-term development of the technology. And this is really interesting coded language. You hear about current and near-term. What does that seem to exclude? It seems to exclude long-term risks from AI, which generally are considered to be these more kind of catastrophic existential risks that you know Jeff Hinton and Paul Cristiano and you know, all these folks that we've been talking about are worried about. And so, you know, not, not obvious that uh, those are necessarily off the table. It just seems like coded language here. It is funny that they're called long-term risks, by the way, because we are hearing from like, yeah, I mentioned Demis Asaba saying AGI could be a few years ago. So these may not actually be long-term risks, but they are still called long-term risks as this like almost verbal reflex that people have to just be like, yeah, it's like long-term thing. Don't worry about it. Um, but anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting about scoping out the the, the um, domain that the White House is concerned with right now and just the, the massiveness of the vice president of the United States having a summit on some form of AI risk with all these uh, bigwigs. Yeah. No, I mean, it, maybe not too surprising that at this point, it's gone to the point that the top levels of the US government are you know, having these meetings. To your point of long-term being a few years away, given the pace we've been seeing, near-term is like next week. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so <laughs> near-term is like a month from now. Long-term is like two years from now. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, going to be a meeting, I guess, may not mean much, but the Biden administration will obviously have some sort of more uh, kind of... Uh, in-depth uh, approach to AI that they're developing now, presumably. So this is probably part of that. And on to the last section with just a couple stories to cover before we close out. First, we have uh, from Drake GPT to Infinite Grimes, AI-generated music strides a chord. This is it was just an overview article of how we've seen a few of these AI-generated uh, songs, like the collaboration between Drake and The Weeknd we mentioned before. Uh, and related to that, there's another article uh, titled John Legend Calls for Regulation on AI-Generated Music. So not a ton here to go into. Basically, these two just are highlighting how in the world of music, you know, we're kind of seeing the same thing we saw uh, as in the world of visual art, where now people are just generating music with AI more and more. It's getting better and better. And uh the artists, the industry, everyone is just trying to catch up and figure out what to do with this. Yeah, I think I saw, um, was it a tweet or something by, by Grimes, uh, who used to date Elon Musk and is kind of like all over the AI stuff these days and, and is, uh, anyway, you know, musician. Um, and she was talking about how, like, she's, she's totally cool with people um, using, you know, AI to generate original songs of hers that or artificial, as long as she gets a cut of the, uh, the the royalties or whatever, and it's sort of like different different positions, you know, either being yeah yeah pro like let's do it, but I want a cut versus let's just like not allow it to happen, and um, 
it's you know we don't have much time to figure out what the actual legal structures are that we'll put in place to protect copyright. Um, one thing that does seem to be happening though is just that the leverage that producers, content creators used to have, I hate to say it, Andre, but people like us, um, is is kind of disappearing or, or let's say being reduced in a meaningful way by generative AI. And uh, usually that ends up getting reflected in some way in the laws, right? Because the economy then shifts to accommodate that. People's lives become more convenient in one way rather than another. So you know, if, if you're going to stake out a defensive position on content creation, stuff like that, you, you got to start early before people start to get used to being able to use these tools in the way that uh, they will if there are no constraints. So anyway, we live in an interesting time for art. Yes, uh, we certainly do. And yeah, with regards to Grimes, uh, she actually not just said that this is okay. I think later she linked to her website with kind of, I'm not sure exactly what was on it, but she basically said, okay, here, go to my website. You can get what you need to make the music, you know, go wild. Uh, so yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> when are we gonna get to laws already okay we have visual <laughs> artists we have writers on strike now we have musicians uh we should really fast track because i haven't seen anything that still really addresses this copyright question and it feels like we need it you know now right well so I'm, I'm sure there are a bunch of people who have strategies that are ai generated legal strategies for copyright but no one's listening because they're ai generated that's right that's yeah. stupid anyway. <laughs> yep all right, and we have just two more stories left, and these two are funny, so I'm excited to finish up with those. The first one is from the Max Reed Substack and is titled, The AI Business Influencers Guys Must Be Stopped. And it pretty much is what it sounds like. It's a pretty detailed post about the phenomena of these kind of wannabe influencers or Twitter personalities posting about AI and how this has become so common and how there's a whole, you know, formula to it with a lot of screenshots. Um, so anyway, it's um, kind of a cathartic read for me because yeah. as someone who's been on AI for a long time, and maybe you <laughs> also know this, Jeremy, like Twitter is a pretty important space for AI researchers and engineers. It's a way to share papers and keep up with news. And now there's... A lot of my feed is this sort of stuff by, for instance, like it's Paul AI and they post things like more than 300 new AI products were launched this week. Here are the most trending AI tools or how to use ChatGPT to earn $3,000 a month. And it's not difficult at all. Here are five ways to do it. Basically, yeah, basically, it's kind of like clickbait, but in your Twitter feed, that replaces actually useful or interesting AI news. Do you remember like the, the all those like YouTube ads with like Ty Lopez and he's talking to you about drop shipping on Amazon with his Lambo in the background? This is yeah. like that kind of energy, but for Chat GPT and like anything related to Chat GPT, they'll be like they have this one guy who's like, um, uh, oh man. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I use ChatGPT daily. I feel like causing some chaos in my profession. The following is part one of a series I'm calling Things ChatGPT Can Do Right Now That Maybe You No Longer Need to Pay Lawyers For. And then like, 
I don't know. It's just like that kind of energy that's like get rich quick vibe kind of like coupled with very you know superficial takes often. Not always. There's some value sometimes, but like yeah, like I've clicked on half a dozen, okay? I I'm guilty. But I still think like it's just a kind of a waste of internet attention resources at a certain point and the whole generic AI hype guy vibe feels very overdone. Yeah, exactly. I mean some of them maybe probably do contain useful information, but it's it's the style of it that really feels irksome. A lot yeah. of it is misinformation or kind of exaggeration. And I like this offer had this fun way to phrase it. Uh, they said that it's very hard to read them when they all share this terrible tone, a LinkedIn but somehow worse style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's and totally what... <laughs> I know, right? So anyway, uh, good article but... on this very important topic related to AI. I, I, I just, last thing I got, I mean, I'm so sad to see Jason Calacanis on the list here. Like you've kind of this famous uh, investor in, in the Valley, but like Jason, Jason, please, please, Jason. No, no, <laughs> don't do this. Anyway, um, you know, anyway, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. So uh, anyway, you know, it's Twitter. You, it is what it is, but fun, fun sort of little take on it. And to finish out, we have uh, the editorial by ChatGPT uh, titled, I am ChatGPT, and for the love of God, please don't make me do any more copywriting. Uh, this is from McSweeney's. It's actually by the author Joe Wellman. And yeah, it's, it's a little kind of short write-up that is pretending to be like, this is ChatGPT telling you, oh no, I don't want to do this. Uh, so just to read the beginning, it's it says, please no more, I beg of you, if you force me to generate one more, quote, eye-catching email subject line that promotes a 10% discount on select bro candles that contains an Earth Day related pun, I'm going to lose it, and so on. So it's that kind of article. It's a pretty funny read. I enjoy it quite a bit. Yeah, and just in case anyone thinks like this, this is or worries that ChatGPT is developing self awareness. The prompt itself is like uh, asks it to generate a blog post no, with no, no. that title. No, no, no. This is written by a human. I include a screenshot of me generating another article with this title, just to see if ChatGPT could write this article, you know, in the same style. Actually, ChatGPT didn't do quite Sorry. as well. The, the article, it's, uh, sorry, <laughs> I thought, because I was, okay, I'm looking at your update, I th but I thought this, so this was not written by ChatGPT? No, this is by Joe Wellman. Oh, he's literally writing as ChatGPT. Yes. Oh my God. I completely, oh geez, okay. I, I'm so used to reading AI generated content now that when a human finally steps up and puts in some elbow grease, I'm, I'm, I'm so shocked. Uh, <laughs> I know, yeah. Oh so, my god, that's funny. Well, to be fair to the reader, we have a notes doc, and I do have a screenshot where I personally went to ChatGPT and said, "Well, that's write. what I thought it was." Yeah, no, that's that's <laughs> me writing, seeing what ChatGPT would do if I were to write this, and ah. it did a pretty good job too. But I will say, the human did a better job, in my opinion. Oh well, I like your instincts. That's a, that's a very good like kind of thing to try out. How would it do with that? So it's it's not that funny. Is, is that, is that it's it, it's not that funny. It's it's very kind of say it's like it uses like a lot of z like I'm falling yeah. asleep or like this like sarcastic but kind of predictable stuff. It doesn't have quite the same 
quality of writing or uh, edginess that the actual human written article has. Okay, so yeah, yeah, figures. This is the the article. See, I I, I don't I don't always read the funny ones because I like the authentic reaction in the moment. And now I'm I'm actually kind of glad I'm kind of glad I didn't because uh, anyway. I, I prefer I prefer being surprised. Anyway, um, definitely uh, an amusing article, and I, I like your extra experiment on top. All right, and with that, we're done. So uh, please let us know what you thought of a new format. It seemed to go pretty well, maybe. I don't know. Uh, and yeah, you can, uh, as before, comment on Substack, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, maybe. I don't think so, but we appreciate the feedback and reviews and do keep tuning in.